You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, attorney Dan Mayer and licensed counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now here are your hosts. Hi there, and welcome back to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Today, Dan and I are interviewing Dr. Tara Sanderson. Dr. Sanderson is a licensed psychologist and author. She has a driving group practice in Tigard, Oregon. I did not ask you how to pronounce that. Tigard, Oregon. Clearly, I have never been there. And her practice is a teaching practice that focuses on helping new clinicians learn the skills of therapy and business before they head out into the world. She is the author of Too Much, Not Enough, A Guide to Decreasing Anxiety and Finding Balance Through Intentional Choices. She also provides supervision and consultation. I want to thank you and welcome you as well. One of the notes, just quick notes I want to just make is... um, for me, it's really exciting to have you on because one of the stresses that I hear from practitioners in is hiring and that there's not ever enough clinicians to hire to meet demand. So a practice dedicated to helping um, provisionally licensed practitioners get the experience needed to meet and eventually help us meet the critical demand for mental health services in this country um, is so important and you know honestly exciting. So it's really neat to have you on here today and thank you for coming on. I am so excited to be here. I feel like I have created this little idea of a niche that I love because so many people have students or uh, provisionally licensed folks in their practice, but they don't have some of the infrastructure to really make it thrive. And I think that I have done a really good job with that, not to toot my own horn or maybe to toot my own horn. I feel like I've done a good job with Mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Um, And just want to share that out to people so that they have an opportunity to to build something that can really thrive. And then of course, have those people launch to do their things wherever they may be or go, whether it's another group practice or their own individual thing, because then that means more therapists out there to see more people, which we all desperately need. Awesome. You had mentioned that your practice is a teaching practice with, you know, like we said, students, provisionally licensed staff. Um, And today you're going to be talking with us about that. You're also going to be talking about some of the risks involved, some of the benefits of being their supervisor and their boss. Um, So tell us a little bit about the work that you do at your office with interns and provisionally licensed therapists. Yeah. So uh, when I created my practice, I knew that I wanted to have newly licensed, pre-licensed students in it uh, because I really enjoy the boss status. I really like uh, creating policies and writing manuals and kind of designing how things work. Uh, so I, I wanted to build some place where that would be doable and manageable. But also, I just feel like, I feel like when I was in my undergraduate experiences and graduate experiences, I got a lot of really great training but there were also lots of things that I missed. And so I wanted to create a practice where I could give all of those pieces that I missed to the next generation of therapists. So as I was designing it, I kept thinking about the word teaching, that that's one of my values as a human. That's one of my values in a practice. So I wanted to have a place where people felt like they could just learn and grow. So as I brought on students and as I brought on uh, provisionally licensed folks, we really developed this kind of entity that said everything is a learning experience from day one's orientation all the way through termination and launch into whatever they're doing. 
we are learning and growing through that whole time. So at the very beginning, when I had just two little baby student interns, I got the opportunity to share with them the whole process of starting up a private practice. I started with just me and two students and got to show them how I would create a manual, how I do my finances, how I set my fees. And as I grew into that, I started realizing this is the stuff that's missing a lot of times for students. They get good training on how to be a therapist, how to be in the room, but not the foundations of how to run this business. Mm -hmm. So we started building that element through all the different layers of them being coming on board with me all the way to launching. And then I've I've replicated that to having uh, associates who may go out and launch their own private practices after as well. So when a provisionally licensed clinician comes into your practice, they're being given the opportunity to learn some of the business basics needed to run a practice. And why it's interesting to hear you say that is because um, I joke with a lot of my clients that lawyers and mental health practitioners like you are have almost like vice versa your opportunities, right? In, in law school, we have plenty of opportunity if you want to learn, take business classes and do business you know, skills and business clinics and things like that. But I don't recall to my memory, and I still don't think it's the case, at least even with my school that I went to, that there's a tremendous opportunity to learn healthcare or definitely not mental health. And when I meet with clinicians, um, you know, as part of my own practice, when I'm representing them, I'm helping them, that's the number one thing is that they learn a lot about the healthcare side, but they learn almost nothing about the business side, right? And so it's really glaring and it's telling a lot of times when I meet with a clinician who wants to start a private practice, you know, they have great intentions, they have a great idea. A lot of times they have no idea what they're doing or how to do it. And that's fine. They're talking to me. So they're clearly admitting it. But it's like, you know, I often have to start with, well, here's what an LLC is. And here's what you know, what an employee is, the difference between an employee and a contractor. So it's cool and really phenomenal, I think, to see you teaching that stuff to new generations of clinicians. Because one of the things I often talk to clinicians about is when you're running a practice like you are or any practice, you're actually wearing two hats. You're not just a clinician hat. You're also a business person. And at times they may conflict. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So it's really cool. Um, I love that. Now, so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned or just reading stuff about you, um, you know, a lot of practices decide they don't want to work with interns because it's too much work or the benefits that come from interns aren't equivalent to the amount of work that goes into them. So it's easier to hire someone who's just licensed. Now that doesn't do anything to help train the new generation and all. I guess the question I have is what, if anything, have you done to make sure that internship is beneficial to um, the both you and the intern? You know, you talked a bit about what you're giving the interns, right? What are the interns then doing in terms for you besides just, you know, training? What's their roles and, and how do they play into your, your, your practice, essentially? Yeah, that is such a great question. So I, when I help coach people on having interns in their practice, the first thing we ask is why, why do you want them? If it's Mm -hmm. to make money, there are a million other ways to make money Mm -hmm. because this is, this is work. This is hard work. And it has Mm -hmm. to be part of your passion, part of your mission in order for it to really function well. So Mm -hmm. because teaching is a big part of our practice, part of what a, um, a pre-licensed person, associate level kind of provisionally licensed person gets to bring to our practice is also the stuff that they're learning to the rest of the group. So we have a regular didactic meeting every week 
And sometimes I have outside speakers come in. Sometimes I do the speaking. And sometimes I have the people in my practice do the speaking. So if somebody's read a really good book um, recently, um, I think it's called Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. A couple of my um, associates had had read it and talked about it in kind of my supervision meetings. And I said, well, let's book you for a didactic. Come train us all on this book. And that's stuff that you can't have in your practice if everybody's just licensed and doing their own thing and just kind of, you know, coming in, coming out, doing their job. When you have a teaching practice where the goal is we're always learning something from someone every time, then you have this new group of people that you can engage with. And I'm, because of, because teaching is a value of mine, I believe in that scaffolding model. I learn it myself. I then teach it to someone else. And then now I've got more mastery built in of this topic rather than just listening to a podcast and never putting it into implementation. Or I don't know, I've been to a million CE credit classes and sometimes I remember stuff from them and sometimes I go, yep, I was there. I know that. Um, But being able to teach it to someone else develops more mastery in that. And I think that's something that my practice gets. That's something I get is being able to learn from all of those other folks. Mm -hmm. And then for students, I think one of the cool parts is um, they get access to a bunch of different elements of what we do and how we do it. But we also get access to all the new stuff that they're learning. Because when I graduated um, with my doctorate, uh, ACT wasn't a thing. So the acceptance and commitment therapy modality was not actually a modality that was being taught or used anywhere. By the time I was running my own private practice, I had students coming in the door saying, well, how come you don't do more ACT therapy? And I'm like, what's ACT therapy? Because they were all learning it right then. So I got to have this opportunity for them to share with me some of the new hot tip research that was happening right here and now because they're in the middle of it all. So I get that benefit too of growing alongside with what they're doing. And just a quick point on what you just said. So what's interesting about, you said a lot of stuff that's really cool. What caught my attention, particularly what I want to ask the question about is, so you're actually doing something, you have an access to something that I see a lot of um, more established, older clinicians. I don't want to use the word older, but more established clinicians, let's say. People who've been in practice, five, 10, 15, 20 years. And that is that, you know, and you see this in the legal world too, um, with a, when you become entrenched is that you stop learning. It's very easy to stop learning. It's very easy to lose touch with what is now current. And that can be very different than what the way you were taught. So it sounds to me like this, by having this influx of new, um, I guess, fresh perspectives, fresh, you know, people coming out of school in your practice consistently, you're actually getting exposure to a lot of the new things being taught. And if there's a big change in how things are taught, you guys are getting exposure to that too. And that seems, so would you say that in your practice then the practitioners who are there, who are fully licensed, this is that they also then get an opportunity to really get and to learn and, and train in these new often methodologies that are, that may be even being taught now. Absolutely. I think because we've built our practice in that way of everybody's teaching and training each other, mm-hmm. that the expectation is, is that we all keep up with the research yeah. that's happening because somebody's there bringing it to us every week in, in cool. fresh new ways. That's really cool. Yeah. So this season, we've been talking about challenges that mental health practitioners have faced. Um, and so I'm wondering if there is one particular challenge that stands out to you when you think about being a supervisor, a supervisor to interns, supervisor to 
um, provisionally licensed therapists? Is there anything that jumps out at you? You know, I'm, I'm going to say two things. Number one is time. I think that we fully underestimate the amount of time it takes to supervise. I tell people that it's about three hours per person per week. And so if you have three people, you're dedicating nine hours of your life to those folks in some capacity. Um, And then to me, even more when you have a student and you have to watch videos. So Mm -hmm. as you're building your practice and you start seeing that the scaling of having more interns doing the work means you can reach more people or get more money or whatever it is, you also have to scale in your time. And that's something that is a huge challenge for us. There was a season where I was not managing my time well and absolutely spent all weekend, every weekend reading notes and pouring over videos Mm. just to give good feedback and do those pieces and had to really take a moment to be like, wait a second, at what point is this no longer me learning and them learning and having it be worth it? Mm -hmm. So time is such a big deal. And I, I definitely think three to four hours per person is kind of the optimal amount of time to be dedicating towards supervision and doing those pieces. That's a good reminder for, for both individuals involved, right? For the person who is the sup- the supervisor or even employer um, and the person who is either the employee or the person being supervised, right? That um, if we're the one doing the supervising, either clinical or if it's because you're the employer, realizing for everyone involved to realize how much time is involved in that, right? Because I think sometimes people just aren't aware of how much time, yeah. right? It can be taken for granted sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second challenge I would say is keeping all of the rules straight. Um, So as a psychologist, I have the unique ability to be able to supervise in multiple different categories of other therapists. Mm. But every category of therapist has their own different rules on mandatory reporting or on how quickly they can get through licensure or whatever. And then exponentially from there, if you supervise people in different states, Like those states have different rules than all of those other things in each category. So making sure that you have a really good system for managing and tracking what rules apply to what people and where, Uh, because that element, it's not cookie cutter. We can't apply the same rules to everybody. So we do have to make sure we're giving the right recommendations. We're giving the right responsibilities across each of the different types of people that we're doing. And that has been a really big challenge for mm-hmm. me sometimes, especially when we're talking just basic mandatory reporting rules of saying, well, but you're talking about this from an LCSW perspective and you have to report in these areas, whereas I as a psychologist don't have to report in that area. And this is why I'm giving you this direction and how we're not. So this is a perfect segue into a question I have. I'm going to put my, take my podcast you know, hat off and put my lawyer hat on. I have two questions for you to get your, I honestly want your opinion. And I'm interested in what you say. First one is what are some of the risks do you find, or you think, you know, that having student interns and visually licensed folks um, uh, in your practice are, you know, and how have you seen them in your own practice? How have you tried to mitigate? Yeah, that is a great question. I think that the risk is always, that they are doing something under your license. So you're held Mm -hmm. accountable for literally everything. There are a few points in time where I start doing the math on how many people are actually sitting on my my license at the point (laughs) they hold me responsible for. And I get hives and I just, I need to go go outside and take a drink of water and be like, let's calm down. Because it's a lot. and And that amount of pressure can sometimes be overwhelming of like, these are people's lives that I am signing off on notes and 
giving direction to how they should go. And if I'm wrong and I'm telling this student that something wrong and that person gets hurt, that's, that's all on me and they're hurt and it's terrible, right? So there's a lot of risk in that piece of it. I think, um, I think there are huge risks of fraud issues that can happen from different ways that we build things or how we communicate things. I think that there are lots of issues with labor laws that a lot of therapists don't think about that you do really have to think all the way through. Um, especially like here in Oregon, we have we have laws that say employees must be paid for every ounce of work that they do. So if they are making a two minute phone call, they really need to be paid for that two minutes. And you can't just roll it into, well, that's part of your job somehow. And other states have different rules, but there's lots of those pieces that you need to understand. And the risks as a business owner are pretty great when it comes to that, not just at, from a clinician standpoint, but as a, as a business owner. So some of the things that I've been doing to mitigate risk, um, I have all of my students tape all of their sessions all of the time. Um, The school only requires us to have them tape one one client for one hour session. But in my opinion, these students have literally never sat with another human before to do therapy. They've only sat doing role play in a classroom. So I don't trust anything they're going to do in that room yet because... They've never done it before. So I need to see everything that they're doing all the time and make sure that I am, um, I'm tracking with it and I'm making sure that they've got the right uh, information and the right way to do things. And then risk-wise, if anybody were to ever contact me and say, well, so-and-so told me I needed to go do this in our last session, I can say, hold on one second. Let me just look that up. About 15 minutes in, you said, let's go see Because for me, I want to have that protection of if somebody claims something, I know for sure. Uh, And that that makes me feel way more comfortable, especially about my students. I think the way that I set up my financial system of making sure that my students are only seeing people um, in this category, that we're not billing insurance, we're not doing anything Mm -hmm. in that piece of it, we're making sure to navigate um, all of our payment issues in one way. And then with my associates who can bill insurance under supervisory billing, um, that they they also know their contract through that. So they read my actual contract with the insurance company. They read mm. the insurance company manual. They make sure to note if they need to use a specific code or if they have different rules that they have to do. Like one of our insurance companies has a rule that for supervisory billing, you have to sign the note. Like the person who does the actual session has to sign the note within 24 hours. And the supervisor has to sign it within 48. Um, but none of my other insurances have that. And my, my associates who can bill that way are responsible to let me know when they've seen a client with that insurance so that I know to make sure to sign that within the 48 hours so that we're all compliant to the rules of supervisory billing for that so that we don't commit fraud, right? So as I've built my systems, I've had some of those risk questions in mind to be able to say, how do I mitigate this? How do I make sure we're all on the same page? So I have two more questions. <laughs> now, one, one I'm going to ask because I, I, I want to hear what you say, because I think people listening would say, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to report my sessions, right? And I suspect that probably the answer you're going to give me is that you do this, you know? And so my question is your process when you're talking to a client, respective client coming in the door, do you have them sign something that acknowledges, hey, by the way, we are recording your session. Here's what we're doing with it. You know, you know, and was that something you kind of figured out on your own? Was that something that you had to learn through trial and error? 
How did you know to do that? You know, I felt like I got really good training in my graduate school experiences of Mm -hmm. consent and consent is required at all levels from the level of I'm a student and I have a supervisor to Mm -hmm. I am recording these to this is what I'm paying for these sessions. And, and in, along the way, having them not only give consent at the beginning, but consent as we go. So one of the tools that I teach my students is not only in our paperwork, does it say we're recording, but in that initial consultation phone call, you let them know we're recording. They mm-hmm. sign the paper that says we're recording. Mm-hmm. And at the start of each ses- session, we remind them that we're recording. Like, hey, I'm recording our session today. If you have any questions or concerns, you can definitely ask. Because all the way through, we're getting that consent to be a part of this um, mm-hmm. situation together. And, and yeah, documentation is important. We have it all documented mm-hmm. and, um, sure. and are able to do this. That's great because that's, you know, something that does come up and people will ask that, well, I want to have a recording, recording and I'm like, great. So you need to tell the clients you're going to do that. Yeah. The second question I had is more of, I'm actually here, you to hear what you just said, because this comes up a lot lately has come up a lot. And that's the question of, how do you approach hiring a provisionally licensed clinician? Can you do independent contractor? Can you do uh, W-2? Now, obviously, it's going to vary from state to state. But I was just curious, generally, and even your experience in, in Oregon, um, what your uh, experience is with that and how, you ta- how do you tackle that? Because that's a question that's up in the air. For example, Maryland, there's still a lot of debate about can you do that with social workers in Maryland? You know, yeah. which model is best? It is wild how much there is difference across the United States mm-hmm. and even within our own state. We actually just got clarification and we are in Oregon. We just got clarification in Oregon from, from Bowley and from um, some other, the Bureau of Labor Industries. Sometimes I forget acronyms are, mm-hmm. you know, all across the board that in Oregon, we absolutely have to have, if, if we are having a employee in our practice, um, who is under supervision, meaning that they cannot work independently, then they they don't qualify to be an independent contractor and you have okay. to have them as a W-2. Now, I will say that Oregon's board, especially for uh, LPCs and LMFTs, um, or in some states, it's like LCPC or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what every other state's initials are, but like professional counselors and mm-hmm. uh, marriage and family folks, and even um, our postdocs, um, psychologist residents mm-hmm. in Oregon, they can work independently. Like they can run their own practice um, as they can run their own practice as a business, but that alone does not qualify them to be an independent contractor because they do require supervision. Their license isn't an independent license. It's a preliminary license. Right. And so therefore they can't be an independent contractor for another business. So the recommendation that I give to people is like, if you're going to bring somebody provisional on board, make them a W-2 so you can control everything that they're doing because you're responsible for everything that they're doing. Correct. If they do not want to become an employee of your company and do it your way, then they need to go run their own practice and do it any way that they are doing with their supervisor's support. Without you affecting your license. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that's really how I I would think about it in every state, no matter what the state law gives. It really comes down to if they're under your license, what risk are you willing to tolerate for them to do in their practice and how they do it? That's a great answer. Great answer. I I, I think I highly agree. And I'm going to have to go back and listen because I think I'm going to, I want to take what you just said 
and memorize that because I think that's such a good way of describing it, uh, of, of uh, analyzing. You didn't know Dan was going to put you in the hot seat today, did you? No, but I <laughs> yeah. love it. Bring it and, on. You know, it's funny because I was writing, I wrote this question down and I thought, okay, I don't want her to think she's in the hot seat. I actually but... want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> no, but no, because it's less about that. It's more like, hey, you actually, I feel like would have some of this say on this. And I, I want to hear what you have to say because I think you, what, you know, what you're bringing to the table, what you have to say is so valuable for people who are listening. Thank but, you. Yeah. So anyway, yes, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat. So I appreciate that. <laughs> so one of the things, you know, that you've been talking about, you know, at your practice, you take the approach that everything is about learning. And also you are acknowledging that there is a lot of risk and a lot of responsibility when you're the supervisor and also when you are the business owner. And that can feel heavy, like you said, like hive heavy. It, it's a lot. And I'm wondering, as you're working with interns, as you're working with provisionally licensed therapists, how do you find that balance between, I definitely don't want you to make these certain mistakes because they can have really big consequences. And also this idea that people are going to make mistakes. Mistakes are part of learning. How have you found the balance between all of the things that we have to think about in our role as therapists and the reality that um, people need experience as part of their learning and sometimes learning comes through the hard way. Yeah, absolutely. My, my initial thought was, uh, I learned a lot from Roy Huggins. I don't know if you, mm-hmm. if you guys know him or have experienced mm-hmm. him. He gave a, a talk on, uh, on HIPAA compliance a long, long time ago. And one of the things he said was, you're going to walk out of here today feeling like you are doing everything wrong and feel like you have to fix it by Monday. But the truth is, nothing is so vital that you can't take some time, figure out a plan, sleep on it, move yourself forward, work the plan. And I loved that methodology Mm -hmm. of thinking. There are very few things that we have to jump on and freak out about immediately. Mm -hmm. If a client is in our office and they are suicidal and they have some sort of a weapon that they are going to do something about it right this very second, yeah, we need to figure it out right now. This is a Mm -hmm. moment to take care of that business. Not Monday. Not Monday. We're not going to deal with it right now. You know, if somebody is navigating a child abuse situation, absolutely. We're going to call. We're going to take care of that right now. We're going to dig in right this very moment. But everything else from being late on writing your note on time to forgetting to write one completely to not collecting money to giving them some really bad advice, as long as it's not, and you should go die, right? Like, or yes, you should go beat your children. Like, as long as it's not really, really bad advice, most things you can come back from, even breaches in HIPAA, even breaches in our therapeutic relationship, because those are all just real life things that happen. Not every human is going to be able to turn their notes in on time all the time. But what we can do is once we know it's happened, Note it, document it, figure out a plan to help you to not be doing that as often in the future. It's not even that you're never going to do it again. It's that you're going to try and create a system that will help support you so it's less likely. And I think if we address most of our mistakes and errors and risks in that way of like, how can we make this less likely? Because as humans, things are going to happen. I've had breaches with clients where the next week they looked at me and said, I wasn't sure I was coming back. This did not work. Something was broken here. And I've had to absolutely take that moment and say, all right, let's dig into figuring out what that was and how we can make that less likely in the future. How can I become more aware 
what do I need to do in that piece? I've definitely had, had insurance companies look at me and say, wait a second, you did not sign this note in time for us to be able to pay this back. And I've had to say, you know what, you are right. I will give you back the money and I will work on my systems to make sure that is less likely to happen in the future. I'll never forget, I had a mentor, a lawyer mentor, actually once told me that, and, and I, t- I talked to my, you know, clinical practitioners about this, you know, is that, and I talked to my interns, I talked to my own staff about this, you know, and he said that, never forget that the word practice, we call it practice because you're always getting better. He's like, and that's true Love for that. attorneys have been in 35 years, you know, practice has been in 35 years, or if you're new. It's practice because you're constantly getting better at it. Nobody's love doing that. this 100%. And I always love that. And that, to me, what you were just describing to me is like, when I think of like that, and I think of that quote a lot um, in my own practice, that you, what you just described is exactly what I think that, that whole mentality is. On a, on a kind of similar note, different note, I want to ask you, it's sort of a continuation of what I was, we were talking about before, but I guess the question I have is, what is the difference between a supervisor and an employer in your mind? And why is there a difference? Is, you know, is there a difference? And if so, why? Is there, what's, what's the differentiation? Yeah, I love that question because I think especially when people <laughs> transition from being pre-licensed to licensed, your role as their supervisor, employer changes, right? Mm-hmm. When they are a student and when they are pre-licensed, a supervisor takes the role of, of making sure that their clinical development is going in a certain direction, making sure that they are meeting the guidelines for ethical treatment of clients. As a boss, your job, or as an employer, um, your your job is to make sure that things adhere to the rules and guidelines that you have created for that work environment. Mm -hmm. So that's things like you need to have your notes written by Friday at five, right? Mm -hmm. But how your note is written is your supervisor hat. Kind of responsibility. When you were talking about hats earlier, mm-hmm. I use that analogy all the time that as a business owner for just you, you've got your clinical hat, you've got your business hat, and you've got your mm-hmm. employee hat where you get to be your own employee at your business. But when you move into a group practice or a teaching practice like mine, you've also got to add that extra layer of I'm a supervisor here and I am a consultant in some ways with people who are licensed in my practice. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. supervise their clinical work anymore, but we consult on clinical work together. Um, and then my boss hat of now I have this whole grouping of people that I have to make sure I'm, I'm adhering to organ laws. I'm adhering to employment laws. I'm adhering to equality and justice in my practice. That's great. I love that. I love that. Question for you. When you're talking about we're laying this information. This is all great. You know, you we talk about preparing these clinicians to go out in the real world, right? When they go out in the real world and they start their own practices, do you continue to relate, maintain that relationship with them? Are they, do you still allow them to come back to you to, you know, hey, say, hey, I have a question. Can we consult? Like, you know, do you continue that relationship? Is that still mentor? It feels like that would be a mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah, it definitely transitions into that. I have people who have kept in touch over the last six years with just kind of random little bits of information going back and forth. I have people who had been my student uh, at the very beginning who came back to become an employee and work for me. Uh, so I've definitely had lots of different layers. And I think that the, the most important thing to me is always about clarity. So when people get ready to launch and they're no longer a student in my practice, I have that conversation of clarity with them of like, I am now no longer responsible for what you do with clients. 
Mm-hmm. Like you will get your own supervision and your own stuff for that. But if you ever want to consult and get kind of an, another opinion or you're just unsure of something, you're always welcome to do those pieces. And here's where I draw the line on you need to pay me versus this is just because of our, our longstanding mm-hmm. relationship. Sure. Um, yeah. To get really clear on like you don't get freebies for life for, you know, seven hours every week because you know me. But quick emails here and there, quick consultations here and there. Great. And when you are now starting to say, I've got 15 questions that I want to get answered and I want a full hour of your time, that moves us into consultant territory. And here's my contract for that. And here's what you can expect. And here's how we manage payment for those pieces. And that leads me to my question. You had mentioned that three of the things that you have learned um, in your work, um, and maybe specifically with interns, is having clear boundaries and clear expectations, having alternate supervisory support, and having open communication. Tell us about those lessons. Yeah, yeah. I think that I'm going to start with the middle one, and then we'll web out to the other ones of having alternate, because I feel like it's just a little bit different. But in my practice, one of the biggest things I realized was these people are all young and malleable. And maybe young in the industry, they may not be young age-wise, but they are all malleable to the power differential that there is of me signing off on their hours, of me giving them their paychecks, of me being kind of their whole world. And I wanted to make sure that no one ever felt like I was the only voice in the room for them. Mm. So I make sure at my practice, if anybody has questions about a clinical judgment that I've made or a recommendation that I've done, and they feel like something is off, They can go to any licensed clinician in the state of Oregon, get consultation and have that person send me the bill. And I will foot the bill for whatever consultation they feel like they need at that point uh, in order to get clarity, make sure that they've got the right information or to check on what I've asked them to do, because I don't want the power differential of them feeling like I'm the only one who can give them this answer to be real. I welcome other voices in this space. I want to make sure I'm I'm doing things right and I'm giving the right information. All of my um, internal folks who I'm their supervisor and their boss, I also give them the option of once a month me paying for someone else to do their supervision so that they've got, again, another voice, another method of thinking about things. And for some of my people, they want to learn different techniques that I'm not trained in. So it's great for them to be able to say, yeah, great, I'm going to go do this EMDR consultation group or I'm going to go work with this other person who does the IFS treatment. And those are my strong suit. So I'm I'm so grateful that they are growing and learning from this other voice in an area that they want to do. Mm -hmm. Additionally, my husband actually works at my practice as well. He's my uh, general manager. And that makes it even more complicated because then if people have a thing that they want to complain about me as a boss (laughs) or something that I'm doing, (laughs) who are they going to go to? My husband? Sounds terrible. So I actually have hired um, a an outside uh, HR consultant who basically is ad hoc. He's not my employee by any means. He's just a consultant. And all of my people have his contact information. If I'm ever doing something shady, if there's ever any sexual harassment or anything that's going on, they are welcome to contact him. He sends me a bill and gives me my to-do list of how to fix it, change it, make it better. Um, so he holds me accountable and my practice accountable for those pieces. And I think that that's another layer of making sure everybody feels like they can be safe here clinically mm-hmm. and professionally so that there is kind of leading to those other pieces. There is an ability for open communication. 
because they never have to worry that I'm going to try and cover something up. I'm going to try and do something shady. I'm going to find some really weird way around it because I'm giving them access to my my contracts. I'm giving them access to the provider manuals that the insurance companies give me. I'm showing them how I created things, who I consulted with to get that. All of my documentation is, um, I went through consultation with a lawyer and my HR, my HR specialist on and tell them like, here's how I got this. These are who I consulted with. This is why I feel like this meets the mark of what we need to do. And if they have questions, they have people they can go to, to ask them. And then for the boundary piece, I think that comes all the way back to paperwork, right? Boundaries and good, clear communication. This is what I expect of you. This is how often I'm going to check on it. This is what we're going to do if it's not working. And all of those pieces give them that stability that says, I know it's expected. I can do those things. And if I ever feel like I can't, I know I can ask questions. I know I can talk to somebody about it and I know I can grow with it. I love that. That's such a great answer. I, I wanted to say one thing that Melissa, and that is, like, see, we do know what we're talking about, right? Because you have a great practice here that has an accountant, that has an HR person, that has a lawyer. We, Melissa and I often on our podcast, podcast our episodes, talk all the time about having a team. And here yes. you are with the team. And so yes. I love it. Like, I love it. Like, it's exactly what we tell people to do. Um, I'm just curious. Quick question. This, was, this is not one of the questions that Melissa and I talked about. But just quick question. When, when someone leaves your practice, do you, are they able to take these policies, these contracts that you have with them? Like, because obviously they, they're aware of them now, or do you have some sort of policy in place that kind of restricts, you know, say, Hey, look, this is our work product. Like you have to wear it your own, but you know, at least you know how, know how to do it now. I think secretly in my like past lives, I was probably a communist or socialist <laughs> or something. I'm a big fan of like, if it's mine, it's yours. Like, cool. let's, let's cool. just build you the right way. Now, of course, when I purchase those things from my lawyer or my accountant or whatever, I do let them know that like, hey, I usually end up passing this information on to my students. I'm not selling it anywhere. I'm not Mm -hmm. giving it out willy nilly. But to my students, because I'm a teaching practice, Mm -hmm. I want them launching with the best things. Would it be okay for me to give them to these as templates for them to update and mark up? And if they have questions, I'd like to refer them back to you. So all of my stuff, when they get it or when they take it with them, has the information of where I got it from so uh, that they can sure. go back to the source. If oh, they sure. want to make changes or get any. Uh, I'm sure the accountant and lawyer love that because they get that as referrals. So that's yeah, cool. Everybody yeah. on my team loves that. <laughs> for sure. So what advice would you give other mental health practitioners who are wanting to develop an internship program or just maybe they're not wanting a full-fledged program, but they want to bring interns on? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I think um, my framework really comes down to make sure you know your why. Make sure you have enough time to do those pieces. And then make sure that you are steadily building your foundation. Because although in the course that I teach on how to have interns in your practice, I give you all of the things you should do um, to make it amazing the way that I've kind of built mine. Uh, But none of those have to be done overnight and you don't need them all built in order to start. You really just need to, the big keys are like, know your whys and make sure that, you know, you're building that good, clear communication. And then start growing incrementally in those pieces. You don't have to have it all built all at once, even though I know we all feel like we do. Mm-hmm. If people wanted to get more information, um, get in touch with you, how can they find you? Absolutely. So I have a little website, drtarasanderson.com. 
And from there, you can see the courses that I do on how to start a private practice, as well as how to have interns in your practice. And then I also have a ton of other podcasts that I've been on, and those are listed on there as well. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you coming on. This has been awesome. Anytime we can mix, you know, talking about, you know, the clinical world and the legal world is always up my alley. Um, Amen. (laughs) But I hope that for everyone listening, this was as informative as it was for us. And you've enjoyed as much as we did. Just as a reminder to everyone listening, if you would like to be a guest on our podcast and come talk about something that you've had to overcome in your own practice um, and how you learned how to overcome it, we would love to hear from you. And there is a form on our website. You can check it out. Um, Just submit it quickly. Um, We'll be in touch. Um, Other than that, as always, you're welcome to reach out to us on the Facebook page, on our webpage. We'd love to hear from you, hear your questions, hear your comments. But in that, thank you again so much for listening. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll talk to everyone soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.